Welcome to the JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. I hope you guys are having a great Sunday. I hope uh, everyone is having a extraordinary week or weekend. We have uh, today's guest is comedian Victor Cruz Perez. Me and him have go back a long time. Me and him have history. He is the second guest I had on on this podcast when I was just starting out. And man, I look back, I was like, oof. <laughs> the, the things I know now, I wish I knew then to give you guys the best podcast experience as I can. But uh, if you are listening for the first time, please subscribe to this podcast if you have an opportunity on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can follow GMS Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please support this podcast by sharing it around if you really enjoy the conversations and and you want to support it even more and help this thing keep going, you can visit the JMS Podcast Patreon campaign. The link is available at the podcast website, which is jmspodcast.com. You got more content available for you at the right at your fingertips. So go ahead, pick up that um, keyboard and type in jmspodcast.com and uh, help a brother out, will ya? Before we move on, there is a subject I'd like to touch upon, only because I, I do feel it is relevant um, now, and that is the situation with Louis C.K. Um, he is or a huge inspiration in my work, uh, uh, and I think a lot of my fellow colleagues in comedy w- would, would say the same, and it's just such a shitty thing um, that's going on right now. And I think this current shakeup that's happening in the entertainment industry, I really hope it really changes things because this is a long time coming. This this culture of sexual harassment has been going on for far too long. But uh, at the same time, it caused me to self-reflect a lot. And I think at the end of the day, I really do feel not just sad about it for those involved and especially for the victims. But a bit, a bit ashamed as well, and ashamed because I, I totally understand where, like, as, as I mean, this may seem like it's national news, and this may seem like it's, it's distant, but it's really not. Uh, th- there is uh, a lot of work to be done, even on the local level, among the comedy circuits. Um, I do find myself hesitating to encourage female friends of mine who are outside of comedy to do comedy um, because I get nervous I get nervous for them and about the uncomfortable situations that are bound to happen uh, and and both on and off off the stage I do my best I can with Cafe for Scotty and my comedy open mic I do my best to create a safe space for everyone it does help that it is at a cafe um, and not a bar but ultimately, uh, I hear stories from local female com- comedians here, and it, it really sucks. It really sucks because I, I consider them friends. I consider them important creative individuals who have a lot to offer. And the shittiest things I could that could happen is them to feel fed up with the constant harassment and to give up. And that's a pattern that happens too often. 
is a female gets involved in comedy after a couple months they fizzled out and a lot of it has to happen because of the behavior they have to go through on and off the stage and I f- and I hope there there's a silver lining again with the situ- situation with Louis C.K. that rings out even to the local comedians to really self-reflect and and really understand that when you are essentially trying to use your little power you have of influence, you're not just you know creating a funny story to tell later of you did. But you're really putting, you're really making someone stop from pursuing their dreams. And that is never simply okay. It's just not a right thing to do. It's just a shitty thing to do regardless if you are a funny person or not. And I guess I really want to use this platform that I have and to encourage not just female comedians, but also uh, female creative individuals to speak out. All right. Uh, This age of social media, I think it's important that we shed light and we continue to shed light uh, to this shitty pattern that does not help anyone. No, just does not help anyone. Not the community not the scene um, because we need to make sure that everybody feels safe to not just follow their creative aspirations but contribute to the community and being a predator deters that a long way all right I just want to get that out of the way, and uh, I want to, uh, let's go on and uh, check out with Victor Cruz Perez, alright, we had a good talk, Uh, I think we had a great chat, and uh, he has an upcoming comedy album recording at the Sounds of Improv, and I think uh, think it's a good chat overall, it's been a long time since I really sat down with Victor and and really talked it out, Um, we catch ourselves at comedy open mics, but you know, you don't really have time to really talk fully. You know, you're always waiting and you're small talk here, small talk there. All right, go up there, perform, and and so on. So it was great for him to stop by the studio and and kind of catch up. So here's Victor Cruz Perez. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. No, you, you were talking about something else. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. I don't remember now. Oh. VCP, Victor Cruz Perez. Is this it? Is it we, are we starting? Yeah, we've been recording. Oh, shit. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? I don't know. Um, it's great having you back, man. You you were the second guest I had on this podcast. And uh, it got a little awkward because my dad kept, um, oh, yeah, kept yeah. coming in. <laughs> And then, uh, but now he's not here right now, so I'm taking full advantage of that. And nice having you okay. over. And uh, I like your dad, though. I would have been happy to see him again. Everybody likes my dad. He's a funny guy. But that's like I, I don't your, know. Your dad technically is a stand-up comedian now because he's done it. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I got daddy issues. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> try living with a guy. All right. It, oh yeah, I understand. 
my my dad uh, my dad also wanted to do stand up and he, he plans on doing it eventually. He's like one day me you know. But it, <laughs> well, my dad wanted to be a musician actually. Th- that was his dream. Oh really? Okay. To be a drummer and a musician. Oh, that's cool. And now I feel I feel has, now that I'm playing music myself, I feel like there's a bit of resentment going on there. <laughs> you know, like you're living his dream. Kind of, but at the same time, like he's he's always you know being a dick to me about it. <laughs> Like it's never really like even in comedy it's not it's always not straight support you know you you always got to give me shit for something mm. like I remember, like I remember that one time you you gave me the opportunity to perform for your Square Bear comedy show mm-hmm. uh, back in the day and uh, and he told me that out of all the comics I was I was uh, four out of ten <laughs> well I mean that there it's like thanks dad. Yeah, support. but you know, I think that the opposite of that is equally as bad. Like if somebody's overly, like you can do no wrong, son. You know, da 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 da, and then you never become self-criticizing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I think that having a critical parent, even though it sucks, can sometimes be a good thing. I think there needs to be a balance, perhaps. But but the thing is, is what are they projecting on you? Like that's my thing. So what are you really trying to say here? Are you mad at me? Because I'm doing something you want to do when you're my age. Now you're not doing it. And he tells me all the time. He goes, dude, uh, if I didn't have you kids, I'll, I'll be playing music. You know, I was like, oh, thanks for, for guilt tripping us. Thanks. Well, I guess you're getting back at him in the perfect way. You're like, well, let me take over. You know, it's like you're doing it. You have, we have the same DNA. <laughs> my, dad, my dad always wanted to be a comedian, but he never did it. So he would record jokes into a voice recorder right. and then like make his friends listen to it. And then like watch them as they watch as they were listening. <laughs> what was the logic behind that? <laughs> I have no idea. That was like when I was before I was born or when I was a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Did you make him happy when uh when you decided to do stand up? When when he first heard, he was kind of like, "What? You know, you do stand up?" I don't think he really took it that seriously. He goes, "You're not a funny guy," you know. And he's like, "I'm the funny guy," because he is. He was always like the life of the party, and I was his sidekick. You know what I mean? And. Uh, so I don't think he was like, well, that's cool, you know. But he was a little shocked, taken aback, because I I made it like a big deal. I was like, look, Dad, I got something I got to tell you that I've been doing for the last three months. <laughs> he you thought know? you were coming out or something. Yeah, he was like, oh, okay. But he was like, he was a truck driving at the time, so he was taking off out of state. So he's like, all right, tell me when you get back, you know, <laughs> or when I get back. Yeah. And so uh, I went and I uh, performed at Rooster Tea Feathers in Sunnyvale, and I recorded it, and then I put it up on YouTube. So, when he came back home, I was able to show him myself doing it. Rather than just, you know, being like, oh, I do stand-up comedy. As soon as he saw the video of me actually doing it, he was like, oh, wow, like, you really are doing this. And you actually are putting your, like, effort into it. Okay. You know? So, I think from there, it went from, like, shock to, like, a little jealousy to, like, full-on support. Hmm. I think he's, like, like, right now, as we speak, he's out promoting the show coming up. (laughs) Yeah, wow. I don't know, man. I, but then again, you know, I don't think I'd be a fair any better as a father. You know, I think about that stuff sometimes. I'm like, dude, if I had a son, it's like, how much of my own insecurity would I take it out on this kid? Oh, yeah. I think that if my kid, if I have a kid and he ends up getting laid more than I do, I'm going to be hella jealous. I'm going to be like, how dare you? <laughs> 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 if my kid's constantly bringing home, like, all these girls, I'm going to be like, this guy... Dude, it's weird seeing kids these days. You know, the kids these days are just getting uh, more, I, I don't want to say sexual, but they know more about that stuff than I did when I was their age. Well, I mean, imagine how much, 
I mean, we were pretty over-sexualized when we were growing up, but now it's ridiculous levels. I mean, if you have access to the internet, That's you have access to the grimiest, dirtiest, nastiest stuff that your imagination can conjure, you know? Whereas before, like, I used to watch... When I would see porn, it was either because I was at my aunt's house and she had, like, illegal cable. Mm-hmm. So when nobody was home, I could, like, switch it to the Playboy channel. Right. And that was like, oh, my God. My thing was HBO. Uh, re- real Sex. Oh yeah, I I used to watch uh, which is so tame compared to what's available. <laughs> oh, I right used now. to watch what was it called? There was a show on MTV. I think it was called Undressed or something like that. Do you remember that? No. It used to come on late at night. I don't know if that was the name, but it was kind of like a soap opera, but it was very sexual. It was softcore. Yeah. Or even if I got desperate, I would just watch Girl Gone Wild videos or commercials. You know. Yeah, yeah. In between, just like, the Howard commercials Stern. would do it for us, man. <laughs> just the commercials. Dude, I'd pop in an R-rated like VHS tape and fast forward until I saw boobs. You know what I mean? That's how I discovered Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Was there boobs in that one? No, but I thought there would be. Yeah, yeah. So, because I saw the preview for Pulp Fiction in another movie, and my aunt had it. I lived with my aunt, and she had like a giant uh, videotape collection, which was awesome for me. So, when nobody else was home, I saw the. I had seen the preview for it before, and I saw Uma Thurman, and I had like a big crush on her just based on that preview. Yeah. So I was like, ooh. I know she's in this movie. It's rated R. She's probably going to be naked in it. That's probably why it's rated R. Right. So I pop it in. I'm, at first, I'm just going to fast forward. Uh-huh. But the first scene captures you. You know, with, you know, with Tim Roth and... Uh, what's at her the, name? At the diner? Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just keep playing this, you know? And then the next thing you know, I'm just entranced by this amazing movie. Uh, and so when the scene comes up where it looks like her and John Travolta are going to start getting it on. I'm like, all right, here we go. Here we go. Going to see some boobs. And then it ends up, she just ends up overdosing on heroin. (laughs) So now I have a heroin fetish, I guess. Heroin. (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, that was pretty traumatic for me as like an 11 year old or 10 year old whenever I saw that movie. Jesus. You're like, what is it? Why? What is even going on? Yeah. Yeah. My parents, (laughs) my parents took me to go see Casino when I was like five. Because they didn't know what it was. They just went... We just all went to the movies. And they were like, what's, what's a good movie? What do you recommend? And the guy behind the counter was like, oh, Casino's out. <laughs> and my dad's buying the tickets. He's like, all right, let me get three for a Casino. Damn. And then my mom like, and I walk up. And he's like, all right, there's this new Robert De Niro movie and Joe Pesci. And I'm like, oh, from Home Alone, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, yeah, I ended up being... Uh, that one, I think, had an even worse impact on me when... Uh, because they've like, seen Joe Pesci like kill people and stuff like that. When all I knew from him was Home was Alone. Home Alone one and two. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty. Uh, it was pretty stressful. We, I, I think eventually my mom had to like take me out to the arcade while my dad finished the movie. <laughs> Damn. And it was a three hour movie, so he didn't compromise, huh? <laughs> no, he was like, "Well, I paid for it, so I'm gonna watch it." Yeah. Jesus, man, that's that's pretty crazy. But that, yeah, man, I get nervous. I get nervous. For the next generation is how sexualized things are accessible to them. And, yeah. I, and the part of me is like, maybe I'm just getting old. Maybe I'm overreacting. No, but then, mean, but then I'm like, I'm looking at it at you know how there's an increase in sexual assaults among more teenagers than before. I'm like, ah, this is this is something. There has to be a connection. I haven't really seen the statistics on that, but I think that I don't know. I feel like our we're in. Um, I read somewhere that civilizations tend to last like 250 years, and then they kind of collapse and rebirth like a phoenix. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like we're in that decadent, like, last stage in America. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be some type of apocalyptic event. I just think that there's going to be something that, like, changes that. And I think that the internet is going to play a big part in it. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, with too much comfort. I think, um, 
certain generations forget how much sacrifice or how much um, shitty it was for past generations to go through, and now they come to a point where everything's easy to them, you know, and then and it, it just I think they start eating each other, you know, not oh, yeah. literally, but I mean like you know I think that's when they start splitting apart on a variety of reasons. Yeah, we're we're pretty spoiled as a generation, and it's not our fault. I mean, we just were born into this, you know, but. Right. I think that uh, it's definitely going to catch up to us, and, and I think it already is in some ways. Well, I'm just surprised the state's been going on for this long, considering how huge the country is mm-hmm. and how there's so many different subcultures and languages and just, um, you know, different, um, just different people from different communities. And to be under that one, you know, blanket of United States of America, it's like we're too big. We're too big for our own good, I think. You know? I think we're going to get bigger, man. I think we're just going to be one world government. Oh, okay. So this is like Soon. beyond United States. This is well, like... I think we already are. You know, when you look at like the UN and everything, like it pretty much already is. And we're already run by banks that span beyond countries anyway. Sure. You know, they're the yeah. ones loaning us the money. So it's kind of like we, we, we're like uh, we're more of a state than we are a country nowadays in my uh, view. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it seems like the United States is now part of a bigger whole or at least that's what they're trying to accomplish hmm. and by they I mean the powers that be but I think it's too simple though I, I don't think so like I mean I, I, to a certain degree I agree to a certain degree mm-hmm. but I'm like dude it's like people gotta it's hard to believe that this small organizations control the entire world well I don't think they're small organizations at all I think they're pretty massive I just think they're set up in a way that they're not all uh, it's not like one body of 12 people. Well, maybe. I don't know. But I just think that, like, you know, when it comes to, like, Illuminati-type conspiracy theories and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that those... I think it's a simplified version of the truth, which is much more complicated. I feel like there's uh, fraternal organizations that work in conjunction with each other to run the world. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be kind of in with the in crowd in order to be part of that. Jesus. <laughs> we are definitely not in the end crowd. No, man. We're gonna perish away. We're the we're the South First Street Illuminati, man. <laughs> Dude, I don't even hang out there anymore as much. Really, I, I feel love bad. Every time I go for Scotty now, I'm like, I don't know half these people anymore. Well, I felt like that for a while too, but and half these people don't know me. I'm like a nobody. Well, that's kind of like what I like about for Scotty is that it changes every six months, and then there's like a new crowd that comes in, and then those people graduate or whatever, and then there's a new crowd that comes in. Really, I get sad. Yeah. Maybe because I'm like projecting my own mortality. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just getting older. I'm dying. I don't know. Yeah, it's all good. Death is not the end. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's weird. I'm going through a weird funk right now where I'm like, at 27, graduated from school. Now it's like, all right, now what to do with my life? You know I think you're saying? doing it. We're doing it right now. And, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm proud of the stuff that I'm involved in and all that. Mm-hmm. But you, know, you start thinking like, bigger picture of where you stand in life and whether you're not or not like I don't maybe I'm, I'm taking this conversation to a weird place but ooh I like weird places but it's like what if I do die t- tomorrow you know and what have I left behind and well you left behind a series of podcasts you left behind stand up <laughs> comedy you left behind an open a lot, mic that everybody loves a, a lot of dick jokes I suppose <laughs> we need dick jokes to survive dude <laughs> oh man but no, you, but I, I look at that type of stuff, too. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm going through a midlife crisis because I'm definitely going to be dead by 60. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this I'm, is my midlife shit, right here. I'm in my third not midlife a crisis guy. right now. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that 
the problem that a lot of people seem to have is that they don't they don't enjoy the journey. You know what I mean? They don't enjoy the yellow brick road. They just got their eyes on Emerald City. But it's like, dude, there's trees that throw apples at you around here. And there's, you know, there's talking tin men. Like, let's enjoy it while we're in it. It doesn't mean, just doesn't mean you should stop heading towards Emerald City. It just means that, you know, stop and smell the roses every once in a while. Because what, you're, what we're doing right here and now is pretty awesome, I think. Just recording ourselves, talking shit. You know, like, it, I think it's because we associate... Uh, success with money so it's like unless you're making millions of dollars you feel like you haven't made it yet and that you're just kind of like failing but I don't think that's true at all mm -hmm. I think that uh, I think that what's more important is your life story rather than like what you've achieved in it I think that you know what I'm saying like when I watch a movie like Star Wars and then I watch a movie like The Wrestler two completely different types of movies one is on an epic space opera scale and one is just like a small movie about a troubled man you know, but they're both really good, engaging stories, and so it doesn't matter what happens within the story as long as it's told very well. So I think that, you know, if somebody dies uh, before they got to accomplish their goals or anything like that, I mean, I think their legacy that they leave behind with their friends and family and stuff like that is what really counts, because they're ultimately the ones who only are the ones that get to enjoy that person's existence beyond them. You know what I mean? Right. Does right. that make sense? It does. It does. That's a really, really good outlook in life. I've been listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got to face the dragon, man. You got to slay the dragon and save your father from the belly of the beast. <laughs> you still, yeah. You ever? Do you still listen to him, or do you listen to him at all? Not as much. No, no. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm barely on that thread. You should just look up Jordan Peterson talking about uh, Pinocchio, like that, just by itself. I think helped me put things in. I was like, wow. I, I am Pinocchio. Huh? Is that is that what you, you learn from it? It's like I am Pinocchio. We're man. all Pinocchio. We're man. all Pinocchios. <laughs> we all got long noses. Yeah. Well, I think that. Yeah, I think that we're all Pinocchios. We're all Geppettos at different stages. Joe, what? Geppetto, the guy who created Pinocchio. Oh, okay. His I thought, dad. I thought you were going somewhere else with that. It's like, dude, oh. it's not a good time. <laughs> Concerned what's happened with Kevin Spacey and all these other allegations. Oh man, keep keep that pedal stuff away so, from me. What do you What do you think about <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't, Ge oh, Geppetto, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's sad what happened with uh, the whole Kevin Spacey thing. Why are all these, like, uh, I don't know. Well, dude, I, I think uh, social media has become the new outlet to put stuff out like that now, to out someone like that. Which, for for the most part, I'm with. You know, I think if there are victims, like real victims, uh, I think um, it's, sometimes it's difficult to go to the authorities. Uh and uh, you know we we live in a culture now where we trust strangers virtual strangers out on the internet than their own neighbors so it makes sense for people to put their allegations out there and it just sucks to hear about it especially from actors you love or filmmakers you love yeah i it really sucks when you hear about somebody you admire you know because i used to watch him on uh like inside the actor's studio where he'd do these impressions he's a great actor yeah and i mean like i feel bad for any you know real victims of his uh, if anything major has happened mm -hmm. well I'm sure it has I mean it's been like an open secret in Hollywood apparently I'm not living there but <laughs> that's what everybody's saying is that like oh everybody knew you know everybody kind of knew that there was something going Dude, on Hollywood are a bunch of hypocrites man that's no secret that's true and That's everybody knows has some dirt on somebody and uh, you know for the longest time people especially during the pol political era of the elections they come in and they're high horses you know going like you know we're gonna speak for the people but I'm like dude you guys are just humans like us you guys do shitty shit 
Yeah, you, a lot of people have to sell their souls to make it. In, you in almost have to. And, and and I think that that's part of the system is that they could they could figure out how to blackmail you. You know, they go, okay, look, we know what you did. So if you you know want to make it, you got to do this, or uh, we're going to expose you, or whatever. You know, supposedly that's what uh, Weinstein actually pretty much did. Like well, he would I, he would tell people like, hey, I could make your career or destroy your career. Yeah, you know, coming from the person of power. I mean, everybody abuses power. Power corrupts. You know, but. It sucks when it's uh, but I, so widely accepted and known, you know? But. Yeah. I do agree with you that it is a big problem within the culture itself of entertainment and the industry, mm-hmm. even on the local I level. Don't think, I don't think it's just entertainment. I think we're just... It's spotlighted on entertainment right now because of how dramatic entertainment is, but I think it's probably prevalent in every right. industry. Right. You know? yeah, definitely right. But what I'm saying is specifically to film, like even on the local level... I mean, I won't say that I've seen, uh, you know, people in positions of producers or directors uh, outright uh, sexually assault anybody, but I have seen, you know, young filmmakers use that power they got, you know, a freaking 21-year-old who's now a director kind of being a bit of a bully, mm-hmm. you know, trying to create his vision. And it's like, dude, dude, calm down. Like, <laughs> you, you, you really, like, there's this, I feel for a lot of young filmmakers, there's this misconception that because you're the director, you you literally have to act like a fucking dictator or an asshole. Well, they they have this caricature of what a director is in their right. mind, you know. And you really don't have to. And on top of that, it's it's useless. You're not really gonna get the best performances out of anybody if you're uh, hanging. I don't know, threatening them with something or or being a dick to them. Well, I haven't worked on a lot of sets, so I'm kind of speaking of a place of ignorance. But I would assume that a really good director, as far as uh, with actors goes is somebody who's actually pretty empathetic because they have to put a kind of I think a good director understands acting yeah. and uh, when you're acting you kind of have to put yourself in the mindset of that character yeah. so if you're trying to describe that information to the actor to guide them for what you want out of the scene you know I think it takes empathy on a certain level but uh, but I, there, I'm, I'm assuming there's probably different types of directors you know there's directors who are good with actors there's directors who are good with Cinematography, you know, they all each have their skills. Well, I I feel as far as I seen, and this is a problem I saw in the film culture among students where I went, is that it's it's kind of homogenized. I I feel like there's not really a diverse amount of perspectives in making a film anymore. There's a lot of I like to call film bros, Mm -hmm. people who grew up on film and all they did was study film and and on the camera and stuff. Mm -hmm. And not many people who want to be directors are getting into acting. So the way to articulate and communicate with an actor, it's not really there as much. You know, mm-hmm. if if you go to a classroom of full of you know young filmmakers who want to be directors, and you ask them what's your biggest weakness, nine out of ten would say working with actors, which you know I feel it's important for anybody who wants to be in a film to try acting classes at least, at least get to feel how it feels to be on stage and perform. Yeah, and stuff like that. You don't have to be good at it, but just know how it works. Yeah, because then you know what the actor's going through when he's trying to get in that zone. Right. You know, get in that state. And for me, it helped me when in theater, even high school theater, that helped me a lot, you mm-hmm. know, trying to communicate with actors. Uh, but as, as I was saying is that uh, a, a lot of people just, uh, I, don't, I don't know the right word for it, but they just treat film like it's the cool thing to do now. Well, because, <coughs> excuse me, it, it's because it's so accessible now, yeah. you know, it, it's so cheap. I mean, it's not cheap cheap but it's it's way cheaper than it used to be i mean now anybody with a camera with a dslr or whatever could make something but 
with that, you, it, it's both a good thing and a bad thing because you're going to have a lot of people who would have n- never been able to otherwise been able to do that. But then you also have people who just kind of treat it like it's a hobby and, you know, they you're working with somebody who's not really taking their own career seriously. I think that a lot of people are just egotistical in this, uh, in our generation. You know, mm-hmm. And I, I include myself in that too. But like, uh, they're, they're more in love with the idea of being a director than they are with the actual process of directing people. Or telling the story. Yeah, you're completely right. I agree with you now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Because uh, uh, I feel there's a lot of people who do, do great visual stuff with great equipment. But uh, sometimes I, I, I was like, dude, what's the point of your story? I don't even get it. Mm-hmm. Or there's always some cliffhanger. I'm like, dude, just just tell a story from beginning, middle, and end. Like, Yeah. I th- well, you know, the problem... Uh, when when it when it comes to like low budget or micro budget filmmaking, like every you're doing everything yourself, right? And so not a lot of that's people. That's no excuse. Come on. Well, even I, if you do it by yourself, I'm not saying it's an excuse, but I'm saying that like people who could who maybe should have been cinematographers want to be. Everybody wants to be a director first. Yeah. yeah. Right. They they just want to be the next Stanley Kubrick or the next Quentin Tarantino or whoever. Sure. But uh, they don't realize that their their actual skills come from. Uh, it come visually or come from editing or come from these different things they automatically go to directing first and then they kind of discover later on like oh I'm actually really good at that or I'm really good at this you know but then again like, you know, people I'm talking about are very young so like uh, something you learn a lot is that you take a lot of time of failing to really get your voice yeah down. and if you could afford to fail that's great because it's just more opportunity to learn afford to fail that's interesting well I mean if you're gonna if you're gonna spend <laughs> your entire life budget on a camera you're right. It's like, all right, can you afford to fail for this? You know? <laughs> That's what you got to respect. People like Kevin Smith who just put all his all his money and debt into yeah, yeah. Clerks, or so the legend goes, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't get Kev- uh, Kevin Smith sometimes. I don't think Kevin Smith gets Kevin Smith sometimes. <laughs> he's produced he's some great early work. You know? I, I like, I think he's... But th- I, but then his recent work, it's like he just he stopped giving a fuck. I feel. Well, I think actually he's just having fun now, and I think that he could afford to. That's another <laughs> problem: is people go into storytelling, fil- visually film, mm-hmm. to have fun. I mean, call me pretentious, but I'm like, I'm not here to have fun. I'm here to tell a fucking story. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on. I really loved his early work, but I think what he's really good at is writing and storytelling, and I think that his that outlet has become his podcast, right? And so now he's basically just making movies he wants to make. Like, I mean, I, I, I respect that. I, I think that uh, we go into it with our own expectations and he goes into it with his own as well. Well, if that's... Okay, I see what you're saying. And, and for the most part, I get it. But however, if you know you're making a shitty film, at least make it free for everyone to see. You, why put it out there and, and charge money to see an atrocious piece well, of shit? Well, the way I saw uh, the last one he did, what was it? Um, the one with Johnny Depp. Um, <laughs> he, the, with, with the fucking uh, the, the hot sausage. dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was that one called? Um, uh, so I don't know. Shit, I can't remember now. But, but his daughters are in it, right? Yeah, daughter, his daughters and Johnny Depp's daughter. So I saw it when I was at the improv working there, and uh, he had a screening. And so what he would do was he would go up, he would talk about it for like an hour. And then they'd play the movie, and then he'd have like a Q and A afterwards. And I thought that was excellent because even if the movie sucked, you could be like, "Yo, why did that movie suck?" <laughs> you know what I mean? You could actually like engage in a conversation with him. And he would go on tour. Like that's what he's doing nowadays. He did that starting with Red State, I think. Yeah, yeah. And now that's basically like his process, which I think is excellent because you you're not just swashing his movie. You get to, you're getting to like engage yeah. with him. You're getting to interact with him. Red State wasn't too bad. I I really like Red State actually. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, I thought that was. I love. 
John Goodman. John, you know, he's oh, good. yeah. And the guy, well, well, the guy Michael Park. Uh, Michael he was Park. he was the bad guy in uh, Red State. Okay, the the religious. Uh, yeah, guy? yeah, that guy's excellent in most things that he does. Everything he does. Yeah. Hmm. He R.I.P. He died recently, I believe. D- oh, did he? Yeah. Dude, I, I was just talking to this earlier. I had a, I had a gig this morning. We played music at uh, at uh, some nonprofit organization. But I was talking to musicians then. They're like, dude, this next decade is gonna be tough because all these musicians we grew up with, like these classic rock and roll people, mm-hmm. they're dying now. They're dying off. You know, they're at that age. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know, the, the Tom Petty passed away, and David Bowie. Yeah, I mean, 2016, I saw a meme on Instagram that said 2016 was the year all your favorite celebrities died. 2017 was the year your favorite celebrities died to you. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, that's true, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really funny, man. <laughs> but uh, hey, man, you're, you're working on a uh, comedy album. Yes. Right? It's going to be at the Improv. Yep, we're recording, uh, what day is it today? Saturday, so we're recording in like on the 15th, mm. November 15th. It's called American Miho. Yeah, <laughs> which I still like. I like that title. Yeah, I, I debated some people. They were like, "I don't like it, man. It's you know, you're not gonna be able to uh, market that to everybody." I'm like, I don't care. Just, this is what I like. I, just, I like this title. Me and uh, when I was working at the Improv, uh, me and one of the doormen there, uh, Steve, we were talking about that. He goes, "I like that. That's a good name." I go, "You do?" He goes, "Yeah, I could see that on like shirts." He goes, I think you should go. And he made me feel all good about it. So ever since then, that's the one that I was in love with, that title. And plus, I think it's pretty relevant to what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about has a lot to do with, like, my family. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I they call me Miho quite a bit. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. some... Well, the thing is, um, is that it, it is seems like you're kind of angling towards a lot of Latin Americans. Do, do you ever have that? that, that... Uh, not necessarily, because uh, I, I didn't have a very... Uh, super Mexican upbringing, you know, pretty whitewashed, to be honest. So I think that's what it, the name kind of implies is that I'm American mijo because I'm one foot in America, one foot in uh, being Latino. And I think that, uh, and it's interesting coming from where I live because I was like the only kid on the block who didn't speak Spanish, right? Because my grandparents, uh, we, our family just doesn't speak a lot of Spanish. And my grandparents do, but they just do that to tell each other secrets you know? And you grew up in the east side, right? Yeah. So how'd you get by? Well, with the schools that I went to, there was a lot of like Vietnamese kids, a lot of Indian kids, a lot of Filipino kids. Uh, there was a lot of Mexican kids, but they weren't really speaking Spanish that much. And the ones who did were kind of mean to me, so I didn't really kick it with them that much. And uh, so, I don't know. I, I grew up on the east side, but the east side also has a large like Vietnamese population. So um, the schools that I went to were like pretty mixed, you know. There's like a multicultural, so everybody spoke English. Yeah, and you grew up. You went to Independence High School. No, I went to uh, Silver Creek. Silver Creek. Yeah, I liked Silver Creek. Is that by Evergreen area? Yeah, it's like all the way up King, uh, by that Target, you know. That's the... a weird area, man. So I don't go there often, but when I do, I'm like, this is like a whole different town. <laughs> it's like its own little thing happening here. Yeah, Evergreen kind of seems like its own little town sometimes. It's a little district of San Jose. I'm not sure if it counts as another town or not because they have like their own newspaper and everything. Oh, do they? Yeah. Jesus. But I liked it over there because it was like a mixture of rich kids and poor kids. And it, 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 I don't know. I just thought that that was a good thing because a lot of... Uh, because it's right next to the hills, but it's also right next to the east side. So, like, you had a, a nice little, 
you know, you had like the poor kids selling the rich kids drugs, you know, and then they became friends and then they ended up, you know, getting jobs or, I'm just kidding, but, you know. <laughs> drugs, <laughs> bringing communities together. Yes. <laughs> um, how, how, were you doing drugs in high school? No. No? No, I wasn't. I was drinking a lot, though. Well, I started drinking when I was, uh, what was it, junior or senior in high school. Uh-huh. And I was, like, pretty shy, you know, and I think that alcohol was, like, the crutch that I used to. Oh, yeah. The first time I ever drank was at the military ball for ROTC. Um, Were you in ROTC? Yeah, I was in Navy ROTC. What? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't very good at it. I wasn't very disciplined, but... Uh, we had used to have like these big parties at the Moose Lodge and we I remember it was like this older dude who was like a cool football player guy and like this girl who I liked and we, were, we all got in the truck and then somebody else and they were passed around like some Hennessy just, Hennessy man you guys were pretty uh, top shelf uh, yeah I guess so uh, and, and I drinkers I, at a young age yeah and so I, I downed like a couple of swigs and I it was, it was, I, I remember like feeling so guilty <laughs> Why? while it was in my hand because I had never drank before you know I didn't do anything bad I was pretty straight edge uh-huh. and so but once I took it and we went back to the dance I was suddenly it was like that scene in Harry Potter when uh, he takes like the uh, the good luck potion in the sixth book and you know what I'm talking about in the sixth movie he takes this good luck potion and suddenly he's walking around and everything's just working out for him and he's all smiles you know it's you watch that scene it, that's what it felt like for me is that I was suddenly popular guy didn't mind if I I would talk to the prettiest girl and you know it it's like all the good things that you like about alcohol were associated with that first time but what I ended up finding out later uh was that I almost got killed by some cholos what? who were pissed off at me for like mouthing out mouthing off to them and were, I was completely oblivious to this were you wearing your uniform yeah I believe, yeah <laughs> but I don't know how they got into that dance, <laughs> but they, they apparently I almost got my ass kicked without even realizing it because I was being stupid as a drunk. But uh, oh, yeah. I remember I danced with this girl that I had a huge crush on. We were dancing to R. Kelly, <laughs> and there was no way I would have ever been able to like ask her to dance. And so I think that the problem with that was is that now I associate alcohol with doing things that I wanted to do, you know, and having the bravery to do them. And I think that. It became like a crutch. A crutch? And I think yeah. it still it still plays as a crutch when it comes to comedy. Sometimes I'll, you know, have a couple of drinks before I go up because I feel like I do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But then there's a little fine line where if you go over that, then you're just a mess on stage. You know, you're just slurring or whatever, you know. I had that experience, but not with alcohol, but with caffeine at Slapface. Uh, the caffeine fucked me up. Like, oh, really? I, I was feeling <laughs> tired. I was like, fuck, I need a boost before I go up. So I figured out coffee maybe. So I, I got, you know, their freaking um, hipster coffee there. And it, it fucking, it fucked me over, dude. <laughs> I, I could barely concentrate on while I'm performing. Yeah. And you got all these eyes looking at you and they're waiting for the punchline, but you can't really deliver because your, your, your head is just racing. You're sweating on the stage. Yeah. Yeah, if I have too much caffeine before I go up, I'm, I'm sweating big yeah. time. Like it's my forehead just makes it rain. <laughs> yeah, but that's the lesson I learned that night is don't don't drink coffee before you go up. That's for sure. I I need coffee nowadays. I grew up drinking coffee. My dad, when I was in high school, he's like he wanted me to mow the lawn, and I was being all lethargic and lazy. So he took me to Starbucks, <laughs> got me a coffee, 
I think he got me a frappuccino, like a Java chip frappuccino. Oh, you got that sugar high too, then. Yeah, and so I was, <laughs> I was out there mowing the lawn and being extra. I was a little crackhead for a day, and then uh, that's when I started drinking coffee, and then I started working at Starbucks. In well, that did it for you, Pete's. the frappuccino. Yeah, I, I worked. I have to go to the source. I became a career barista after that. <laughs> How was and it working for Starbucks? I liked it. You know, um, a lot of people give Starbucks shit, but. I well, that's only time. because they're the most popular, you know. Well, yeah, and anything I, that's popular. I, I was shit. lucky in that I had a really cool crew when I worked there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and working at Starbucks is like joining a, like a secret society. Like every party you go to, you're like, "Oh, you work at Starbucks? I work at Starbucks." And then you just start talking about working at Starbucks for an hour. How shitty the customers <laughs> are. You can always tell somebody works at Starbucks because they'll have a bunch of green aprons in their car, <laughs> like empty, empty. Uh, uh, oh, the hats. The. Uh, I didn't. I didn't wear a hat. The cap they 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 wear. I think they. I don't. I never had to wear a cap, but I think that they wore them in like Starbucks, like franchise, like the, uh, like you know when you go to Barnes and Noble and they have like a Starbucks in there. It's not officially a Starbucks, but it's like a, uh, it's like using the brand name, and I think right. that's more likely to wear the hat. Jesus. All right. Did, did you have any regulars you had to deal with when you were working on Starbucks? Yeah, there was this lady. There was a couple that would come in. Uh, this guy, really cool, chill guy. He always got a quad cappuccino, and uh, and he liked it kind of dry, you know. But then when his and he was cool, he wasn't picky at all. But when his wife would come in to order for him, she would make you do that thing like three or four times. Jesus. Because if it was too heavy, then it was not dry enough, you know. And so I don't know if you know what that means when I say dry. It means not it's, at all. <laughs> it means it's mostly foam. It's mo- more foamy than milky. Yeah. Okay. So you have to steam the milk just right just right and she would like lift it up and say nope and push it back and make, make us do but it the third again. time like dude you do it then you yeah but she was mean and I was scared of her <laughs> she was like Jesus. hot and mean imagine the husband Jesus poor guy yeah dealing with that oh my god but anyway so you, looks like you had a good time at Starbucks huh yeah I mean that's when I turned 21 so we were at Starbucks was cool because if, if you have a cool uh, crew of co-workers like you guys all go out afterwards and stuff like that and yeah, it was fun. It was just one of those... I don't know if it was because it was a Starbucks, but I just happened to have a lot of good coworkers there that were fun. That's what I miss about working in the restaurant business. You know, when I used to work for Gordon Biersch, I mm-hmm. was a dishwasher. It's just after, like, a hard shift, you just drink a beer with the with the crew. Yeah. I, I used to love doing that after working at the Improv because, you know, me and all the servers and stuff, we'd go over to, like, Dive Bar or Johnny V's when it was still going on. And especially live, working downtown, like... If anything, it was a little, little too easy access. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just sure. bars everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, we get the, special uh, treatment. God, why, why am I blanking on that bar's name? That's just around the corner. Cinnabar. Cinnabar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that place. Yeah, I love Cinnabar. They changed it up recently. We went recently, or not too long ago. Yeah, they, looks, they real, looks real nice now. Yeah, they they renovated it or something. It used to smell like piss, and now it's like right. What a nice little place, you know? I didn't recognize it. I'm like, holy shit! Look at the decor. Like the the they raised the uh, the roof, like uh-huh. literally, like the roof is higher now, and like, so like they, the paintings are in different spots. Yeah. It, it's, that's like gentrification right there, man. Because I'm like, everybody looks friendly now. Holy shit! <laughs> before I walk in, it's like not a smile on anybody's face. Yeah, it it felt like a dive bar before. You know, now it's like a nice. It's downtown San Jose is going to be changing, I think, within the next ten years. Yeah, yeah. Because you got Google coming in, you got Bart coming in. Yeah, people are freaking out. It's like, yeah. come on, dude, come on. I feel there's a lot of fear mongering happening downtown. Wait, how so? 
They're like, oh, Google's coming in. They're going to raise the prices on everything and well, the housing. Well, that's probably true. But it's true, but it's like really just because of Google. I mean, it's, it's happening regardless of Google. Well, I figured it was already going to happen because of because uh, of BART coming downtown. Yeah, exactly. and But adding Google on top of that. And just the Silicon Valley in general has been changing for, over the last 20 years. It's getting a lot more expensive, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that... Uh, I remember at the Forager, I got like a... Four dollar tea, four dollar and change. I'm like, I freaked out. I was like, what the fuck is this? The future, right here? <laughs> at fucking Friscati for like a three three dollars and change, I get a pot of tea. For now, at for, the Forager, I'm don't get me wrong, Forager's a great place, but I'm just I was freaking out the prices of the tea. Yeah, I haven't. I've never ordered tea. I've ordered wine there, and then I spilt it like a jabroni, and I was stupid, and I just walked away. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I gotta go. Uh, <laughs> Shame. Yeah, that place is cool. Though. I like how big it is. I never, I never seen an event there, but I want to go yeah. when they have like something going on. Yeah. Well, it, it's weird. They got a w- weird acoustics for music. I feel like I remember uh, a while back ago, I was hanging out there with Israel and other musicians, and there was a band playing. I think they're called Love District. Mm-hmm. And uh, Israel's like, oh man, what do you think of these guys? And just because you know, it's it's so echoey in there. So sometimes the music drowns out the vocals and here and there, and, uh, and other instruments. So I'm like, ah, they're they're all right, you know, no big deal. Like, and then Israel got, I wouldn't say he got mad, but he seemed like like, dude, what's wrong with you? They're a great band. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, okay, but not really, but okay. The acoustics. Right. Yeah. So about cut to like months later, at, at the Sofa Street Festival, Love District is playing music at the stage with great acoustics. And I'm like, wow, this is a great fucking band. Yeah. They're great. But it just tells you like how that you know little details like that could really affect your oh, sound. Oh, definitely. I saw um, I saw it was a really big rap concert. I forgot which one. It was like one of the ones that Wall ninety four nine or somebody put on, and uh, it was the game Snoop Dogg and a bunch of other like hot rappers at the time. And Snoop Dogg came out with a live band right to play all his instrumentals, and it just did not sound good in the arena. It the acoustics were totally off. And people were, like, walking out and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It was like, what? But when you see Snoop Dogg perform the same way in a different place, like, say, the amphitheater or whatever, it sounds much, much better, much more enjoyable experience. Do you find that uh, a similar situation with comedy and stand-up? Um, you know, I remember I was watching the Dane Cook specials where he was performing at, like, Madison Square Garden and stuff. And I was, I kind of couldn't help but think, like, I wish he would have performed this in a smaller venue. Because the sounds of like the screaming and you know, all the women screaming, oh my god, Dane Cook, and it was like a little, it was drowning out. I mean, it kind of added to the electricity, you know, because at that time he was like the biggest rock star comedian. But I think that uh, it would have just been as a comedian and as a comic fan, I think that I would have enjoyed it better if it was at, like the size of the improv or the size of a, you know, a smaller theater mm-hmm. rather than like a giant arena, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like I'd much rather see Kevin Hart in a in a comedy club than I would in like a football stadium. Yeah. Even though it's cool just being part of that experience, but in, in those specials where they're in the stadium, I'm a little suspicious about those laughs. You're um, suspicious about the laughs? Yeah, it's like it's it's a lot of people there. It just I don't know. I I don't know what what jokes are really that good after all. You know what I'm saying? Because like, I feel when you see a special that's in like in a club, mm-hmm. the laughs seem at least for me like authentically fitting in with the with the punchlines. But with the arenas, I, I just, I just for some reason, I feel like I, don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, I guess it really just depends on what, what angle you're trying to go at. Because one of my favorite comedy albums is uh, 
the day the laughter died, right? Um, by oh shit, I'm forgetting his name right now. Uh, you know, uh, Ugh. Ugh. why can't I remember his name right now? He's a big time. Is it a New York guy, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm blanking on his name too. Oh, this That's, is horrible. We uh, should you should just edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is embarrassing. Is it Dave? No, it is. I know who you're talking about. He yeah. got his. He got. He got famous from tell from being on like Rodney Dangerfield's. Was it a tell? Did have a tell? No, oh. it was. Um, New, really? I don't know. You should edit this part out though. I don't want everybody to know. I can't remember. Nope, this guy. <laughs> there's, no, there's no editing. We're failed comics here because we can't figure it out. The day that laughter died. The day laughter. Dice Clay? Dice Clay, yes. Andrew Jesus. Dice Clay, Jesus. Why couldn't I remember that? What is that? wrong with us? I don't know. Holy shit. Well, in my defense, I didn't grow up listening to Andrew. He was already kind of gone by the time I was a kid. But I heard that album within the last few years. And that album's great because it's in, it's in. I think it was recorded at Dangerfields in New York. And it was like it was like on an off night. It was a uh, it, it was half full. And he's just up there. It really felt real because it, it, it was very authentic. You know, he was being as offensive as he wanted. People were walking out, you know, but it, it felt genuine. Whereas compared to like a, a show recorded at a, at a giant stadium. I and mean, that's a whole other experience entirely, you know. So, I don't know. But then you got some people who, who uh, go kind of crazy. Like uh, Maria Bamford and her specials. Yeah, I like her specials. It's like, holy shit. It's, it's almost an art film, like sometimes, I feel. Like, just the balls on this chick, you know? Yeah. Dude. Well, I kind of like that she gives you a little taste of all the different layers. You know, you got... She's performing in front of uh, her friends. She's in, performing in a bookstore. She's yeah. performing in a comedy club. Like, that's what comedy really is, is performing at these random venues yeah, yeah. in front of people who may not even know that there was going to be comedy there that night, you know? <laughs> so they're they're kind of taken aback that this woman's telling these ridiculous jokes at this bookstore. Although I'm sure in the special they all expected to see her, but... I've performed at bookstores and random places. I've performed at strip clubs. I've performed at bookstores and pizzerias and just video stores, you know, like everything. Video stores? Yeah, there used to be Lost Weekend Video in uh, San Francisco. That was a great, great venue. Oh, man, that would have been awesome. I yeah. missed out on that. Well, it was actually downstairs, so it still kind of felt like a comedy club down there, a little tiny theater. Cool. Uh, you, tried, uh, you tried to record a couple of specials yourself. How did that go? Yeah, I didn't try to record anything. I just recorded myself on stage but just for like YouTube you know so this is like this upcoming one is like the first official like release that I'm gonna be doing why an album and not and not a not, not a special then um just cause I can't afford a special <laughs> this is all self-produced basically so I mean I could have a professional sounding album but I probably couldn't have a professional looking uh special you know what I mean and it, this is also kind of like to me, this is a little bit more like a uh, like a comedy mixtape sort of thing. Where like it's it's stuff that I I kind of started off doing for the last five years, you know, and it's a c accumulation of that, and it's going to be recorded on my sixth anniversary, and it's stuff that I like and it still works, uh, but I feel like I want to start moving on to different subjects, so it's I feel like I have to put a close to this, record it. Um, and then be done with it. Jesus. Are you ready to let all of that go? Yeah, I think so. I have other stuff that I've been working on since I ended that. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I could probably continue to... 
I, I, what I was trying to get to was um, having something to show, but also being able to work on stuff while also having something to show is what I'm trying to say. So like having a, I'm working on a new, you know, 10 or 20 minutes now, uh, but I'll have like this album to be like, oh, if you guys like that, I got an album to sell or whatever, you know what I mean? Oh, but, merch. Merch, you know, whatever. I'm not really, I'm not really concerned about uh, like making a lot of money. I just kind of want to put myself out there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So something to put on a website, something to put on uh, YouTube. Are whatever. you now planning to uh, make actual uh, physical copies? Of yeah, I actually, I think I am. But uh, I think for the most part, most people will probably consume it just streaming it. So right, we'll see. I haven't decided or figured all that out yet. I just want to record it first, and then how I distribute it will be dependent on that. Nice. Nice. Are you building a website for it? Yeah. You already have a website, right? No. No. Not yet? No. I kind of been putting... Because I wasn't sure uh, how I wanted to present myself to the public. You know, I was kind of figuring out what I was as a comic first before I wanted to, like, start branding myself and putting it all out there. Jesus. Ooh. So right now, I just basically have only been putting stuff up on Facebook and YouTube and things. But once I really start... Once this is done... Then I'll start the whole marketing campaign as far as like. Well, where do you even start in branding yourself? I don't know. I kind of. It. I don't know. That's strange. That's a weird question. I don't know how to answer. Because <laughs> I kind of. It, it depends on. Uh, when I listen to it all. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Really. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a hard question. I guess yeah. I can't figure it out myself. You know, a lot a lot of people. Um, for this podcast, for example, you know, they're like, how do you brand this podcast? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Is it a color scheme question? Is it, is it a... Well, you know, when you look at, like, say, Louis C.K., for instance, right? Louis C.K. is, like, the everyman. He's the single dad. He's the average Joe, kind of blue-collar guy, even though he's Louis C.K., but that's kind of the image that he puts out there. Uh, Jim Gaffigan is, like, the, uh, the lazy, kind of obese gluttonous kind of guy that we all have inside of us you know what I mean the he, he that's why he's always talking about food and being in the family man and all that stuff I think that most successful comics take a sliver of your uh, personality or a sliver of their personality and they make that uh, they they capitalize on it they well they make that the focus yeah, yeah. you know what I mean like so when you think of like uh, Chris Rock you know, he's like loud and he's in your face and he's walking around stage a lot, you know. That's like his mask persona that he, that's the Chris Rock comedian persona. But I'm sure when he's trying out material, he, you know, he's just doing this jokes, seeing if the jokes work. And then you could put that Chris Rock filter on it, which makes it even better, you know. And I think, and also when you're writing too, you gotta, it's just about finding your voice. And so uh, I kind of let other people Tell me, I, I get feedback from people and they're like, oh, we really like your storytelling, but we, we hate this other shit that you're doing over here. You know, blah, 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 blah. And if I really enjoy doing that shit that they hate, I'll still do it. I don't care. <laughs> but if it's something I was just experimenting on and it's not hasn't been working, then I'll let that go. I really enjoy storytelling because uh, I feel like I, I got, my dad's a really good storyteller, so I kind of observed him throughout my life. And you're really then, good at it, man. Thank you. Yeah. When I, uh, I got compliments on that like when I was a kid and throughout high school so those 
were planting the seeds in my head of like, oh, maybe I could be a comedian, you know. Blah, blah, blah. So I sometimes feel bad giving the letter for Scotty because I'm like, dude, I, I, I don't want to rush him. The story. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, it's fine, man. Respect the light. Sorry if I ever go over. No, it's okay. No, but what I'm saying is that you're such a great storyteller that sometimes I, I do like let you go on a little longer to, you know, because they're fucking fascinating stories well, that you're telling. Well, my favorite part about storytelling. As opposed to, like, say, one-liners and stuff. I would love to be good at one-liners, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm just not. I'm shitty at those, too. Yeah. Shout out to Tyler Standard, though. He's good. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, that kid's going places. Yep. Uh, but, what was I going to say? Oh, I like telling stories because you could tell them differently every time. You know, it might be the same story, but in the way that which you tell it. The facial expressions you use, the tone, which parts you emphasize more. You know, you could experiment with that over and over and over again until you feel like you've perfected it. And I well, actually, I don't think you could ever perfect it, but until you're satisfied with it, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah see, I don't know, man. Uh, like you said, you got to take parts of your personality and really capitalize those things on your set, you know, and to really create this image and brand. I'm like, I don't know where I fall. Like, am I like the angry, anxious guy? Like, really, I'm that guy. It's like uh, the angry what guy? Anxious. Oh, anxious guy. Oh, I think of you more as like a. Uh, you're very much like a presenter. That's why I like your hosting abilities because you're like you're always presenting. You know, I don't know how to. I feel the Describe opposite, that. though. Really? <laughs> I feel like I'm just trying to survive this set. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, story- storytelling is fun. Uh, and I think it's important because it's in everything that we do, even in music. You know, it's in books. Sure. It's in, yeah. I mean, it's... When, you look, when you're look when you looking back on your life and your deathbed, it's just a story that you're remembering, basically. Like, life is just like a 4D story, <laughs> you know? I really believe that. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of like my little philosophy is that, like, we're living in a story that is our own. And the only real audience member that we know exists is us in the future. So when I try to, like, come up with goals in my life, mm-hmm. I what I typically do is, that, like, I'll say, I'll picture in my head. Like, say, I, I, before I was a comedian, right, but I was thinking about doing stand-up. I pictured in my head this guy on stage dressed a certain way, you know, presenting himself a certain way. And even though I didn't have the jokes or anything yet, I kind of had this mental image of what I would like to be. But that person wasn't me yet. It was, you know, just a completely different version of myself that I could imagine. And so I feel like that's like once I decided to be a stand up, that was like the beginning of the story. You know, that was and and that if was you, chapter one. Yeah, that was that was the uh, what is it called in the hero's journey and. Uh, that was you start off in the regular world yeah, yeah. and there's the uh, inciting Catal- incident right. you know the catalyst yeah. yeah and for me I think what happened was I was thinking about doing stand up but I, I was working like 70 hours a week at the time at Starbucks? no I, this I'm, at that point I was working at Pete's and I was working with my dad truck driving okay. and stuff and uh, I didn't have time to do anything really um, but then the the truck driving job was gone eventually and I ended up quitting Pete's and so I just didn't have a job and I wasn't sure what to do but the doing stand-up had always been stuck in my head I just haven't done it yet uh, and a friend from high school started doing it and not Curtis Taylor Curtis Taylor had been doing it but I didn't know about him doing it yet it was another friend named Martin and he was hosting an open mic at Decine in Sunnyvale and I saw him post about it on Facebook and so I hit him up and he's like come on down you know so that's when I was like all right I'm gonna do it I'm gonna just do it just get it out of the way like just go you know and then I'll be a comedian I feel like as long as you 
decide that you're a comedian and you've performed, you're a comedian. I don't I don't care if you're getting paid or anything. I think that it's a mentality, really. I think that it's, once in a while you get someone posting on Facebook like you're not a real comic unless you've gotten paid or unless yeah. You, I mean, you've I understand. Clubs. I understand that you know. There's le- different levels to it. You know what I mean? You, you just because you're not. You know, Leonardo da Vinci doesn't mean you're not a inventor if you invent a new app, you know what I mean, or something like that. They're both inventors. It's just one is on a much larger scale than the other, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that you could still consider yourself a comedian if, uh, I mean, if you if you do stand-up for like three weeks and then you never do it again, I don't think you're a comedian. But if you've only done it once and you're in love with it and it's you know that's what you want to do for the rest of your life, I think you're a comedian even if you've only done one open mic. I think it's a, it's a mind state, really. It's how you pr- how you choose to live your life. Well, maybe this guy who was doing it for three weeks started off believing that's his destiny until after a third week of eating shit, like, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, because, I mean, you have to like eating shit sometimes, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I Sometimes I enjoy it. It's kind of like a sick thing about me. Like I, some, You, you got to embrace the bomb sometimes. Yeah, that's I, something I, I think I, I got a little too into it. <laughs> like, I remember when I first starting out, like, bombing was the enemy. You bomb, you're you're worthless. Like, that was my mentality growing up, like, when I started comedy. But after a while, of it just like, you know what? It's part of it. Like, it's it, it's you can't stop it. No matter how good you are, it's going to happen. So now, like, I'm, I'm much more calmer about bombing now. Uh, you know, that's why I was like, once I feel like I'm bombing, it's like, okay, relax, just plow through it or, or I don't know, do something Yeah, I, I feel much more, I feel, I feel much more guilty if I go up and don't do any new material or, you know what I mean? Put yourself it, in a hole. Yeah, if, if, it happened, if it was basically pointless for me to go out because I didn't really try anything new, Yeah. then even if I did well, I still feel guilty. But if I go up and bomb, but I was doing all new jokes or a new story or I was taking some type of chance... Then it feels like, all right, even though I bombed, at least now I know that story needs some work. You know, those jokes are shit. Whatever. You feel productive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tricky, too, because sometimes you're only performing in front of other comics at open yeah. mics, you know, and uh, it's kind of hard to gauge. Yeah. And on top of that, it's like I feel, you know, a hard time giving advice to you, to newer comics, you know. Like, well, we're, we're still new comics, you know what I mean? Like, right, but it seems like you're more comfortable, you know, kind of you know showing them the ropes or you know giving some insight well, to I them know, I, i'm more like i don't know dude i'm still trying to figure this shit out myself don't don't, don't ask me well there's advice. certain there's certain truths that you could learn you know the respect the light you know what i mean don't well, of course don't fuck up Basic your reputation stuff. in the comedy community like i did but like <laughs> i feel well when did, I, when did you do that well i feel like i i think everybody does a little bit sometimes especially if you're not conscious of it i think i've gotten too drunk on stage i've been late to shows before mm-hmm. you know so i'm trying to really correct that now that I feel like I just the older I get the more ashamed of that part of me I am so I'm trying really hard to discipline myself and present myself in a more I don't know I, I was just kind of a, I started doing comedy at a point where I was also drinking a lot mm-hmm. right so those two don't mix well I mean they mix well they mix a little too well and I think that that may have uh, that may have maybe burned some bridges in the past sorry to hear that man yeah, I mean, it's fine. I mean, as long as you learn from it and move on. Right. Uh, if I just blame everybody else for it, then then yeah, it was pretty shitty. But I'm trying to change. I'm trying not to be an asshole. I'm the same boat as you are, man. I'm trying to be, like, less intense. Like, I feel like I'm catching myself being too intense sometimes in most mundane things when I'm communicating with people. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, just dial, dial it down. No need to 
to get over reacting here. Yeah, I, I think the I think when I'm not so focused on my own ego is when I generally do well with others. You know what I mean? But if I'm tripping about how I'm dressed or oh that girl I like is talking to a different person or <laughs> oh, that worst. guy never books me or you know whatever, <laughs> you're just you're in Fuck your own that head. Guy. Yeah, yeah, instead yeah. of you know asking somebody about themselves. You know, like oh so you know what are you working on? You know, da, da. yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to be more conscious of that lately. Um, How's that working out? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we may never know, man. Yeah. I but and I wanted to kind of record this album too because at the beginning of the year when Trump won the election, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm gonna. How could I use this to my advantage? I'm gonna assume that the world is gonna end within the next four years, right? So what am I? What do I want to do? before the world ends and I'm just kidding when I say that kind of but you know what I mean like I I was like what goals do I want to accomplish in case the world ends within the next year or so well I always wanted to record my comedy album and I always wanted to like go skydiving I always wanted to do this and that so I'm trying to accomplish those bucket list goals just in case we all die you know what I mean right get that stuff out of the way yeah make my peace with God <laughs> but I don't think there's going to be any type of yeah. giant World War 3 uh, I don't know it's looking dicey I mean I don't think it'll be a world war but there definitely could be consequential um, events yeah we might I, I could see like a, another depression you know something like that I could see uh, I think the most civil unrest but I don't I, th- I think right now the, the biggest thing that could ca- causes a lot of damage is just the climate change and how much uh, global warming has affected hurricanes and how it's really expediting earthquakes and expediting a variety of other storms that really hit us hard the United States mm-hmm. and other countries you know it's like that's the forest fires though those are gonna be a lot more common now it's like yeah. it, it's come to a point where I'm like I don't know if living in California is such a good idea anymore. I don't know. The droughts, which I guess it's over now. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel pissed off that I'm being forced out of my own state. <laughs> it's so fucking expensive here. But, uh, I mean, hey, maybe it'll be a good thing. Maybe. Well, you said you're thinking of moving, right? Well, I was thinking about moving to SoCal. SoCal. Yeah, but I'm not 100% sure on that yet. We'll see. You used to live there with your family, right? That was like. Your yeah, my, dad li- my dad's from there. So I'd spend, I went to year-round school. Which was like three months and then a month off and then three months and then a month off all year. Mm-hmm. So that month off I would spend in SoCal, which is why I'm like a Rams fan and a Dodgers fan and a Lakers fan is because my dad's from LA. He brainwashed me into, <laughs> which was hard because my family is like Giants fans, Niners fans. So I was always getting I mean, shit. I don't think I could survive in LA, man. Every time I visit, it's like ah, uh, you could just smell the broken dreams. You I was just... there earlier this year and I just felt, man. Because I was supposed to move there uh, in high school, but I wanted to finish up at Silver Creek, so I decided not to move. And sometimes I wonder, what would my life be like if I had gone down there? The what-if questions, yeah, huh? I'd probably be able to speak Spanish by now. <laughs> probably. It's pretty funny. But yeah, man, um, so you're thinking of that, that's coming out, you know? Yeah. Pretty soon. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. I think you're doing great down there. I yeah. Mean, I'd also like to move to like maybe somewhere like Oakland or somewhere in the East Bay. You know, because uh, I feel like it's just being bar accessible, even though I guess that's still going to come to San Jose. It's going to take a few more years. I'm right with you, man. Like, uh, moving has been my mind. And it's like, I don't know where it's coming from. Because, uh, like, you could relate where you see so many opportunities here to be in entertainment. However, it's like sometimes I feel like a prisoner. You know, as much as I, I love this town, 
and the people in it. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I haven't really spread my wings out there. You know, the, the reason why I want to move is not really because of comedy. Uh, it's more just to f- have a different setting. It's it's more to have like a different location. You different know I mean? scene, yeah. different people. Yeah, just different vibes, different culture, somewhere different else. Different people to fall in love with and maybe get heartbroken from. Yeah. Like I'm <laughs> if I if I could afford it, man, I would move like every two years. Oh. For like the next 10 years or 20 years. Two years know. is a good spot. Like it's a good I, year I think to know everyone. and Yeah, imagine you lived in New York for two years, then you moved to Austin, Texas for two years, then you moved to, you know, Seattle or wherever you want to go. Yeah, um, I think that'd be great, and I think it would help uh, help to learn about different people. Because if you're just in the same, I mean, in in California, especially here in the Bay Area, we we're like stuck in the, like this liberal bubble, and we were all so shocked when Donald Trump won. But it would, I would see comedians come to the improv, and they're you know touring all around the states, and they're like, yeah, they would mention Donald Trump, and everybody would be booing and saying, oh, that's ridiculous, he's not going to win. They would, and they would be like, well. I just got back from so and so, and everybody there was cheering when I brought him up. So don't don't think that what's going on here is going to be reflected all. And then now we know that for sure. You know, like yeah. well, that's what I'm saying it, earlier in the podcast, where it's like we're just too big of a country. There's too much distance between us to really communicate with each other. I mean, you assume with the internet age, it's much easier to communicate with well, each I think other. That, I think that's going to start to change, especially with like if they start implementing that hyperloop thing that Elon Musk is is trying to bring about and the the boring tunnels. I, we're gonna be able to fast travel everywhere. What does that eventually. motherfucker eat to get so smart? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it cannot. It just cannot be genetics alone. I wonder what his IQ is. Too fucking high, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm. I think he's either a super villain or a superhero. I'm not. I'm not sure yet. He's either Lex Luthor or he's Batman. Oh, but Jesus. Well, dude. Um, have you seen? I've seen a recent video about AI and how this fucking robot. Uh, with AI just gained citizenship in Saudi Arabia. Oh, yeah. Which is stupid because a lot of women don't even have a lot of rights. But this And it wasn't does. even built in Saudi Arabia, wasn't it? It was built in uh, the United States. Well, I think they got a lot of investors from Saudi Arabia, you know, uh-huh. a lot of rich, you know, people yeah. out there. I kind of, yeah. But the thing, the scary thing I found is like, yeah, I mean, we assume control because it's, it's kind of primitive right now with the AI. But, you know, once you built an AI that could process information, information, like a million times faster than we can with our own brains and they could you know just consume so much information and make their own decisions the te- technological singularity yeah yeah i'm like and and then with with Elon Musk you know kind of giving a war, you know he's trying real hard to put regulation on ai and how much and yeah it's not just him it's Stephen Hawking it's all the greatest minds that we have are like yo you know we're we're uh, we're opening pandora's box i honestly think that honestly if you want to if I'm being real, I think that um, unless we could somehow prevent it, I'm not very, you know, knowledgeable when it comes to these things. But from what I gather on my YouTube uh, journeys is yeah. that it seems to me that the human race and everything that we do and all of our ambitions and all of our goals is our purpose. I'm not saying this is what it is, but I feel like it would make sense if our purpose was to establish this AI as the next form of evolution. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, it's just everything that we do, building that Tower of Babel is to reach that point in which that will take over the planet. And it'll just be, it'll look at us like the same way we look at the, you know, the fish that we used to be in our earlier stages of evolution. I think that, uh, I, I think calling it an artificial intelligence is 
I mean, it, what makes it artificial? Because we made it, or well, yeah, kind of. I mean, that's what I think. I, I think uh, we ultimately gave that information to its brain. It's not like us where we naturally kind of, or were we, or were we designed to do this anyway? Like in the same way that uh, the, um, our ancestors were designed to. I mean, not designed, but it's in our nature to evolve. And keep going, you know what I mean? Well, that's I think the that this question is... I'm leading up to is like, once this becomes the new ultra species, mm-hmm. the, the new alpha species, what would be their nature? Because it's no longer human, in my opinion. If it's robotic and has all this artificial intelligence in it, there's I think you're you're there's no human really element to it anymore. You can put as much faces on it you want, but ultimately that thing is has no real blood and and you know bio stuff in it. So what? So what? What would give it personality? And exactly. What would, yeah, and this is why I like listening to Sam Harris talk about this stuff too, because he gets all into it. But we have to somehow figure out a way to. I mean, honestly, I don't know if we have any choice when it comes to that. You know, it might be up to it. I mean, I don't want to sound like a luddite because I am for AI to helping us, you know, with infrastructure, helping us, you know, become more organized. I'm all for it. It's just you know there is a certain section of AI where it's kind of meant to explore. Kind of like, how far can we take it? You know, how far can we give life to this Frankenstein? Mm-hmm. You know well, we might already be living in one, and that's another thing that they talk about too: is that the simulation theory is that we might be already in one. We might be in an infinite, you know, as above, so below type situation where it's like we're gonna create what we already are in, and you know, somebody else created us, and they're in, they're in one themselves. The simulation, I mean, like, uh, and I. I think that well, that's I th- a very real possibility, especially when it comes to... I, I have a theory, though, that in our evolution, we definitely killed off our creators, I think. Because we were, we, we were bred, like our species now, mm-hmm. we were bred from the previous species. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in time where, like, for example, uh, Cro-Magnums coexisted with humans. And it's still a mystery, technically, of why they disappeared. But I think a lot of it has to do with us just killing our creators. Well, to me, the best story when it comes to evolution and all these different things is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> right? <laughs> all right, where are you going with this? Because, okay, before Rudolph was the hero, he was just a freak, right? People were like, look at this weirdo freak with a big red nose, a big shiny nose with light emitting from it. Like, this guy's a freak, right? Yeah. And then Santa comes down. You know, then their reindeer god comes and he's like, it's foggy, I need some help. And, and next thing you know, Rudolph is the hero, right? He, he saves Christmas. I'm pretty sure Rudolph got laid, like, hella after that. You know, Rudolph was fucking all those reindeers, mm-hmm. having hella Rudolph babies. Now they're all going to have, the next generation, that red nose is going to be dominant. And in 100 years from now, all those reindeers are going to have red noses. And I think the same thing is going to happen with humans. <laughs> or it has happened with humans. I mean, that's evolution in a nutshell. Right, right. It, it, what started off as a mutation is now the dominant trait, and I think that, uh, I mean, I don't know. I just I, I I'm not gonna stress myself out about it. You know what I mean? I think, <laughs> Let's live in the moment. Yeah, I, I I'm happy to just exist in the first place. You know what I mean? I'm happy to watch whatever this movie is. You know. <laughs> And if it all ends with us, you know, becoming slaves to Skynet or, you know, being plugged into the Matrix or just getting wiped out in general or living alongside it in, co- in peace, I'm, I'm, 
I'm just interested in watching that play out. Really. Well, Victor, I hope I could one day be at peace like you are. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for that day. All right, Victor, it's already been an hour. It looks like we're good to go. All right, man. Thanks for having me, dude. Hey, thanks for stopping by again. You know, it's been it's been a long time coming. Yeah, I, I'm happy to be back. This is cool. I like your setup. It's it's growing and growing. Yeah. Uh, tell your listeners uh, your upcoming show. You're 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 recording an album. Yeah. So I'll be uh, I'll be at the San Jose Improv November fifteenth. So this is gonna come out next Sunday. Yeah. So it'll be this that Wednesday. Uh, it will be. F- um, we're giving away a bunch of free tickets. So just uh, just talk to me if. Uh, well. Well, they go they go to the ticket booth as well. Yeah, or you could go on SanJoseImprov.com. Um, and or look it up on my Facebook page, Victor Cruz Perez on Facebook, and uh, you'll see all the info there. And the show will start at eight o'clock, and it should be good. Awesome. All right, Victor, thanks for coming. Thank you. Victor Cruz album recording at the San Jose Improv in downtown San Jose is on November 15th, which is on a Wednesday, at 7.30 p.m. Please go to the Improv website and you can buy your tickets there. Thank you for tuning in. It has been uh, another great episode for you all. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys took a lot from it. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. And I'll see you guys next week. And I guess I am out of here. All right. So let's, uh, I'm going to go try to enjoy the rest of my day. All right. It's been a tough week and I'm, I'm going to go do that. All right. See you later, everyone.